This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the I Can Do podcast with Benjamin Lee. We're here to talk about tips and strategies to have an I Can Do mindset when it comes to faith, family, fitness, and food. Let's go. Here's your host, Benjamin Lee. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Can Do. I am Benjamin Lee. Thank you so much for listening in once again. Really excited, as I always am, about having guests on the show. And the same is true with this particular guest and this particular episode. Today we have with us Kevin Clark. Kevin is an attorney. He is a partner for Lightfoot Law Firm. Kevin has successfully argued hundreds of motions and tried several jury trials in state and federal courts throughout Alabama and across the country. He is a frequent speaker at national legal conferences and seminars hosted by the Defense Research Institute, the Trial Network, and other legal organizations. He also regularly speaks for local schools and civic organizations and routinely preaches for churches across the country. Kevin and I have actually been able to uh, study and preach the Word of God together a few times in the last few years. Kevin's legal practice spans a wide variety of civil litigation matters, including catastrophic injury, product liability, toxic torts, medical malpractice, employment discrimination, and consumer fraud. Kevin also has significant experience defending clients in class action litigation. In addition to litigating cases, he provides training and consulting services for his employment law clients. Before joining the firm, Kevin clerked for Judge Bernice B. Donald of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Tennessee. The experience of researching legal issues and writing opinions allowed him to further refine and hone the research and writing skills he developed in law school. Moreover, the opportunity to consult with the federal district court judge about the lawyers appearing before her helped Kevin develop an appreciation for the intangible aspects of persuading judges, communicating with courts, and portraying his clients in the most favorable light during litigated disputes. Kevin is a member of the National Black Lawyers Top 100, a national invitation-only professional honorary organization. He also is a fellow in the American Bar Foundation, the Alabama Law Foundation, and the Litigation Council of America. In addition to his legal practice, Kevin is active in several national and local legal associations. He's been very involved with DRI, which promotes the interests of the defense bar and has served on many committees within the organization, including his service as chair of DRI's Toxic Torts and Environmental Law Committee. Kevin has also been active in supporting his alma mater. He served on the University of Tennessee Alumni Association's Board of Governors from 2004 to 2010. He was elected to serve as treasurer for the University of Tennessee Alumni Association for the 2006-2007 fiscal year. In addition, he served in the executive committee for 
the University of Tennessee Alumni Association and the University of Tennessee Alumni Association Strategic Planning Steering Committee. Kevin is a proud husband and father of three, including a set of fraternal twins. We could go on and on with so much that Kevin has been able to do, but we'll stop here for now. Kevin is a a great encouragement to me as a brother in Christ, and he's a great encouragement to so many people. And I truly believe that this conversation that I had with him will be an encouragement to you, to your family, as you think about hard work, as you think about expanding your mind, overcoming obstacles, and enjoying some really great books. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on here. And uh, we've already been talking a little bit and maybe we can go back to some of the things we've been talking about. I know that you're a uh, prolific speaker, uh, being a lawyer and preacher and so many other things (laughs) that we've been talking about. For those who are listening, we've just been talking about different uh, techniques and different things that we're learning. So uh, thank you for being here. And I definitely want to learn from you. I want to start off by just asking Obviously, this has been a crazy year, uh, 2020. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have wanted to cancel 2020, but that's right, not going right. to happen. But just want to see how are you been holding up with the year so far? Well, I appreciate you asking. Obviously, you know, things got out to a bang for me in terms of my law practice and my preaching. Uh, typically, the times when I preach the most will be in the spring and in the fall. And so I had a few meetings in the spring. Uh, the workload was pretty high at work, and so I was blowing and going. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19 happened. And of course, for the preaching, it completely dried up everything. I had several appointments uh, that got canceled for good reason. I certainly understand that. Uh, But the work kind of continued. Now, what was different is that instead of coming into the office and traveling the way that I normally would, uh, most of the work was done from home. In fact, the managing partner of the firm that I'm a part of was encouraging people to the extent that you can with the technology we have available to us these days, try to work from home. And I'll tell you something, Benjamin, that has been a a wonderful side benefit of this whole process. And obviously, I wouldn't want this on anybody. You wouldn't want the 168,000 deaths. And you're not saying anything about embracing that. But as so often the case, God can take something that's awful and turn it into something wonderful. And that wonderful for me is I literally have spent so much more time with my family, with my wife and my children being there every day, seeing them, uh, being able to take breaks from my work to answer questions they have about the Bible, about their homework, or just to spend time with them. And that's been invaluable. I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't do enough of that before COVID-19. And so it's caused me to slow down and, and reevaluate the importance of family time. I've, I've spent a lot more time doing Bible studies, especially with my oldest child, Jasmine, who's 14, so, uh, you know, th- those are some good things. In fact, my oldest child got baptized during the COVID-19 oh, season, great. so to speak. So we were yeah. thrilled by that. So, yeah. uh, yes, some terrible things have gone on. But for the most part, uh, we're making the best of the situation. You know, our family has been spared uh, so far. None of us has developed, at least in my internal nuclear family, uh, COVID-19. I've got a relative that had somebody catch it and unfortunately passed away. And, yeah. and certainly we feel for them. But for the most part, we're just trying to get used to being protective. And you can't stop life. You can't eliminate all risk in life, but you should take certain precautions. And so that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's certainly good news with your daughter. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's great, man. And that's that's a, that's the mindset I've been trying to take as well. 
Kevin, with it is it's it's been tough for sure, but there's been a lot of great things that have come from it. Right. I think it's a great opportunity as well for for Christians to make even more connections, and even yes. even like with technology, like with what right. we're here, we're recording via Zoom. Uh, you can still do so many different things, and the Bible studies that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of guys from Appian Media on a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. I interviewed them, and it was interesting seeing how they. They had to pivot too. They can't fly across the world, but the, 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 the Bible studies that they put together, the material that they have. So it's just, it's really interesting to see how all these new things have come about. Right. The book I read called the The obstacle is the way it's by Ryan holiday. He's got more of a stoic. He's more of a stoic, stoic philosophy, but Mm -hmm. it was interesting because there was one page that really stood out to me. He had this whole list of all these companies that started like, FedEx, and I can't remember all of them, but typically it was in some kind of pandemic, yeah, crisis, right, or bubble burst, or whatever right. it was. So I'll be curious to see, you know, what that's going to look like, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, when we look Absolutely. back, you know what I mean, to see what actually comes out of this. I, I, t- I think there are going to be some real life ch- uh, changing uh, alterations. Uh, for example, I've talked to some of the folks here, and we've contemplated that less people are going to come into the office now. I mean, even after COVID-19 is over, people have learned that they can work from home and do so productively. I had a client of mine, he was making the same point, said, look, I can save a million dollars a year leasing a building because we've all realized now we can stay home and do these things. And so you're right. I think technology is revolutionized things. Even in the church space, I've talked to some people and some of them have talked about maybe we do this even beyond COVID-19. Uh, additional Bible studies via Zoom or via Microsoft Teams or something of that nature. So I think you're right that it's going to be a transformative event that will be with us for decades to come. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, being a lawyer, and I feel bad because I think we met back in 2014. I was in – I think I missed it when a couple of guys from uh, Beaumont came to Emma to record – I think I was in the hospital. <laughs> you were, you were. <laughs> and, and I was I was disappointed because I'd heard so much about you, Benjamin. Yeah. And I was so excited about finally being able to lay eyes on you and shake your hand. And lo and behold, you got sick on me. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a chance to talk, uh, work together in 2016. That's right. We did a conversation about race. And then in 2017, Mm-hmm. We did another conversation about race in the Dallas area. Right. But I don't think we ever had really enough time just to really, for me to learn more about you. So sure. I'd love for you to share with me and everybody else who's listening. Uh, how did you get interested in law and walk us through this process of, of you becoming a lawyer? I'd love to. I'm glad you asked that question. And it's really atypical because most of the young people that are coming into law now, when I ask them that very same question, how they got interested. It was an event early in their lives that triggered that interest. It may have been that they came from a family of lawyers and kind of were groomed that way, so to speak, or there was some interaction with the law that inspired them. Uh, I have none of that. I had no uh, thought about law growing up. I don't have any lawyers in my family, didn't have any lawyers in my congregation, uh, which I grew up, so to speak. Uh, It was really not until my junior year in college that I began to pivot to law in terms of a possible career option. Up to that point, I really was a business person. Uh, I was a major in marketing. And as a part of the marketing program in your junior year, you had to take a business law course. Mm -hmm. And so taking that course, and I I still remember to this day, Professor Bruce Fisher 
that first day, you, you had one or two reactions to Dr. Fisher. Either you loved him or you hated him. And <laughs> to illustrate that, I remember going back to my dorm room. We had a suite. My best friend was in the suite. And we were talking about Dr. Fisher. And LeKendrick, my best friend, he said, look, there's no way I'm taking that course. That guy is a threat to my GPA. I know another professor that teaches the same course, and you get A's in that. And I had the exact opposite reaction. I was like, this guy is brilliant. This guy is challenging. The way his mind thinks is beautiful. How he would take things that I took for face value, and he would say, okay, this is what they say, but let's look behind that and analyze this, and this is not what it is at all. And I thought, whatever made him think that way, I love that. And so we would begin to have these conversations during his office hours and just talk a little bit about what I was interested in in his class. And I remember him saying, look, your mind is good for this. I mean, you like to reason from general principles down to specific applications and specific circumstances. You need to give up this idea of business because, Benjamin, to tell you the truth, at that point, my plan was to continue to get my marketing degree go out and work in corporate America for a few years, come back and get your MBA because I'd like you to have some executive work experience before you pursue that. And then just, you know, climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. And that I had no pretensions of law, but in talking with him, consulting with him, truly this one individual changed my life in terms of my secular profession because he inspired me to think about law. And after those conversations in that class, I pivoted completely and began applying for law schools. And, and, you know, really I, for several years after that, I would write him and call him whenever I spoke for the University of Tennessee. I would mention this very similar experience that I had, transformative experience, where one professor really set me on a new path. And I'm so glad because, Benjamin, I love what I do. I mean, I absolutely love it. Now, I will say this. My parents say that I was in some ways trained for this because they say that I was an argumentative child. <laughs> 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 whether that's, that's true, true or not, we'll leave for another day. But yeah. uh, I, I will say that I did often disagree with my parents, but, but I learned something from that experience. Uh, the, the belt trumps logic every single time. Yeah, I got more than my fair share of whoopings. I'm not saying spanking, whoopings, yeah. because I dared to, to speak back, and, and I needed that. But yeah. and I, in fact, I told my dad the other day, I said, you know, I won some of those arguments on the merits. <laughs> my dad would say, this is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship. And surely it was, and it should have been. But that that's really how I got down that path. And yeah. once I decided to pivot, then all of a sudden people appeared out of the woodwork in terms of folks that could help me. I reached out through uh, church circles to certain Christians who are already lawyers and try to get a, a, an idea of what does this entail? What does it look like? Because yeah. I had no experience, nothing to, to base it on. And, and I'll say this, Benjamin, even when I decided to pursue that, I still didn't know what that path would look like. I just knew I want to go to law school. I want to be on my feet. I want to argue what I couldn't have told you specifically what path I want to go down. And I just got lucky. I ran into some good advisors along the way. And people who kind of opened up some new paths for me to consider almost fell into it. For example, uh, when you go through law school, the first summer is critical. You want to get some paid employment if you can. And most of that paid employment is comes in the way of defense firms, defense law firms. And we're talking about civil litigation, not talking about criminal, uh, where people are arguing about money and property and those sorts of things. So really the, the holy grail, so to speak, in that context is to try to find a firm job, big firm job work for the summer, get a sense of what it's all about, and then let that experience help you decide, do I want to do this for the rest of my life or not? 
And I was very fortunate to uh, get hooked up with a couple of good firms in Birmingham. And uh, then my second summer, I went to Nashville because I was still torn. I'm from Tennessee originally, grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and really fancied myself and still do, even though I'm in Alabama as a Tennessean. So I was struggling between cities, but ultimately I decided that coming to Birmingham with this particular firm that I've been with since uh, October of 1999, and I've enjoyed it. I can't tell you enough how much I, I mean, sometimes I have to slap myself. You mean they pay me to, to, to read and write and argue things that I like to do, period, whether I get paid for it or not. Yeah. So I enjoy well, that's it. That's great. Well, you said so many great things. Number one, I totally understand what you meant with uh, with the whoopings because I got <laughs> a lot of it. And uh, yes, I got some with the belt, uh, sometimes with the hand. And uh, yeah, so I, I can totally relate to that. And looking back now, I, I'm really thankful. You know, my granny, she yes. gave me a lot of those. And she, yep. she may have been like 110 pounds, you know. And, you know, but there is there was something to that with, with the discipline. Amen. And, you know, Amen. We, don't, we don't have that as much anymore. We don't. In society. We, don't. we need that. And we're not, we're not talking about hurting kids or beating right. kids, but understanding that, that there's, a, there's a proper way to, you know, respect mom and dad or the grandparents. Absolutely. And so uh, I got I to gotta chuckle out of that. And, uh, <laughs> I, Let me I say one quick thing, Benjamin, on that. Yeah, and I know yeah. you don't want to go on to other things. But I agree with what you said. Never. I heard some people say, well, when you spank your children, you're teaching them that violence is the way to solve your problems. I didn't pick up that at all. I knew yeah. exactly what was going on. It yeah. didn't uh, destroy my self-esteem. It didn't teach me that violence is the way it's all. It taught me a respect for authority yeah. because it was always tied to this is what you've done wrong. And here are the consequences of that wrong. Yeah. So I fully understood that. Not saying I liked it. Yeah. Uh, I may not have appreciated it at the time, but it didn't warp my personality and yep. scar me for life, as some would suggest. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you said something, too, that caught my attention that I really liked. Uh, it's almost the contrast with you and your friend. I know GPA is always important. Right. And I loved how you mentioned, okay, this professor is really tough. Yeah. And I'm going to stay in his class. Right. And I don't know if that was more of the, I'm going to prove him wrong or <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to show him. But I think there's something really there. I think that to me, that that's like that. It's the I can do mentality of, right. right, this is a harder path to go. Right. But you saw something in him. And I'm wondering what thoughts might you have for people today? Because the world that we're in now, there's going to be people who have to go on a completely different path. So right. you've already done that where right. you already, you kind of had your mind set up and then something changed. Right. And what, I mean, what do people need to be reminded of with themselves or with the obstacles that they face that even though something may be hard, yes. it's still worthwhile going through. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I think sometimes people have a misunderstanding, even religious people that think that if a path of least resistance presents itself to them, that must be the path that they need to go down, that they're destined to go down. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I really think you have to be flexible, you have to be open, and you have to be willing to brave, to a certain extent, the unknown. As I said, I didn't have anybody that I could look to that could lay out for me within my family and my friends, you know, what this path is going to look like. But I saw enough, and I was open-minded enough to say, you know what, that sounds like something that based on my personality and my aptitude. And again, it's, it's knowing yourself and based on the description of this path, I want to take it. So I think you have to be open to new things, open to change. You can't be 
uh, with the, single-mindedness is good in some respects. Obviously, if you're talking about Jesus and going to heaven, absolutely. But when it comes to our secular lives where there's so much latitude, you just have to be open to things that are different. And just because it's difficult, don't shy away from it. Look at it. I mean, some of the most rewarding experiences I've had in life have been things that have been extremely difficult. And part of the joy of coming out the back end is to look that look back and see what you did. You were able to get through that. And there's a satisfaction of, hey, I put it all on the line and look how it paid off for me. One of the things, that principle of, you know, you reap what you sow has stayed with me so often. So when I'm going through something difficult, I'll think back to the difficulties I had in my academic career or maybe early in life and see what happened when I really invested in myself. And then I use that to kind of encourage me and motivate me to go forward. That's the path to success. I think people just need to be open-minded, look to others. Uh, Nowadays, there's so much information at our disposal with the internet and Google. And so there's no need to be ignorant and be bound by ignorance. Get online, start searching some things, identify some people, reach out to them via social media, uh, emails, uh, phone calls. You'd be amazed at how many people are interested in mentoring uh, younger people or even older people that want to go a different path, a path that they've been in. That's an interesting point, too. And I appreciate you sharing that, that idea of mentoring other people. I think sometimes people are afraid to ask where, all right, if, if I ask this person you know, to be on my podcast or to, to be a mentor, you know, what if they say no? And I was just talking to my wife, Nikki, and my mom about that. I uh, reached out here recently to, to someone else to be on the podcast show. And, and so my philosophy has kind of been, well, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Right. right. So they, if they say no, then at least I give it a shot. Right. But they could say yes. And if they say yes, that one conversation, uh, when I was working at Gold's Gym, in central mm-hmm. Illinois, I had graduated from the University of Illinois and, and back in 2000. And I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And there's a guy there and I feel bad because I can't remember his name. And he said, hey, what do you want to, you know, what do you want to do? What have you been thinking about? And I said, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, let's, let's go get a cup of coffee. So that cup of coffee just changed everything for me because that's when I first learned about pharmaceutical sales. I said, man. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what this is, but that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want right there. And I was willing to do, you know, whatever it was. And I, I've seen that as well, where one person, your professor, yes. that cup of coffee. Yes. And yet there's sometimes there's that fear. Let me ask you this. I, my son just turned nine. Okay. And you have uh, three children. I do. Uh, how do you instill this mindset or what What are you and your wife doing to to plant these nuggets of, you know, this mindset of, look, it's okay to go down this difficult path. Uh, do you have any tips for me or other parents out there? Well, I'll say, and, and we use different things, and, and I don't want to get political, but I almost had to. So obviously, I come from an African-American family. I have African-American children. I have three of them. Uh, Jasmine, who's 14, set of twins, Brooke and Blake, are 11, going on 12. And one of the things, of course, we did things before this, but when uh, Barack Obama came on the scene, one of his signature phrases was, yes, I can. Yeah. And I used that, and Jacqueline, my wife, used that liberally with our kids. And it got to the point where, and it's still the case, I can't, or I can't do this, or it's too hard. Those are bad words. We don't say I can't. I would say, what does Barack Obama say? Yes, I can. <laughs> so we just don't accept self-defeatism, that whatever you put your mind to do, we believe you can do it. And one of the things we instill in them is 
not so much competing against others, although there's a space for that and a place for that, but really something that I learned for myself is competing against yourself. It is pushing yourself to the limits of what you're capable of doing. Yeah. Until you've done that, don't ever be satisfied with that. So we tell our kids the sky is the limit, whatever they want to do. We don't let people define uh, the limits of that. For example, sometimes if you're a part of an ethnic minority, there are even the minority itself will say, well, there's certain things we don't do and we can't do this and we'll never attain that. We don't talk about those things in our household. We point to all the people that prove to the contrary, whatever you want to do in life, you can. But we tie with that, though, with that vision, you've got to execute on a plan to put yourself in the place of fulfilling that vision. So, for example, with my daughter, who's playing basketball now, and she kind of came to it kind of late. Uh, she was interested in basketball and she had all these lofty goals, but I didn't see any ownership taken. I didn't see her doing practice. It was always Jacqueline or me reminding her, hey, you need to shoot some baskets. Hey, you need to stretch. Hey, you need to study up. And I felt like I told my wife, until she takes ownership of that, I don't know how much we're going to support this. And finally, the, 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 the light switch flipped and she took that ownership. And now without us saying anything, she's going out and saying, I want to go to this camp. I want to go to this clinic. Uh, this is what you do. Uh, going out and shooting baskets on her own, going out and doing some strength and conditioning. And I thought, that's what I wanted to see. So to answer your question, it's a long way of doing it, but we really instill in them that they can do anything they want to. And really they have to not only on three levels, one, just as a good human endeavor, do the best you can. Uh, As an African-American, we also stress upon them. That's a way to combat racism and prejudice and bias. If you're excellent at the things you do, that's going to change some opinions, change some minds. And then lastly, and the most important is that the Lord requires whatever we do, we need to do as unto him. And certainly he knows your mind. He knows when you've mailed it in. That's the funny thing. You know, I can do 95% or 90% and maybe people around me are impressed and think very highly of it, but the Lord knows better. He knows I held back that five or that 10%. So we try to stress to our kids, don't hold back that five or 10%, give it all. Yeah, no, that's golden. I appreciate that. And I think there's something really important with, with young people and just the ability to, to be able to work hard. Yes. Yes. um, Social media has certainly gotten in the way where there's so many distractions that it's just kind of hard to, to, to focus on deep work. Right. um, You know, that's the satisfying work and um, the kind of work that you do with the reading and writing, obviously that, that takes a lot of uh, concentration. Let me ask you another question with respect to people who have impacted you. I know your yeah. professor has, right. Your parents certainly did Absolutely. or continue to, um, who else stood out to you or stands out to you, um, that have helped you along in your journey? Well, I appreciate you saying that there are really several people as I go back in my life, uh, from three, uh, vantage points, one in, in the church space. So I grew up in a small rural congregation in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, And we probably had 60, 65 people, but very close knit. And I've always told people in terms of Bible knowledge per capita, I don't think I've ever up to this day, including the church I'm at, been with a group that had as much Bible knowledge per capita as that small 60, 65 person church. And I sat back in amazement as I saw both men and women who were mighty in the scriptures. And some of the folks who stand out to me the most would be David Riggs, who was the preacher there for so much to my formative years, and, and he stands out because he really pressed and, and impressed upon me and all young men the need to use what the Lord has given to advance his cause. And so 
all of us were encouraged to give talks. All of us were encouraged to give Wednesday night invitations. And all of us were encouraged to the extent we demonstrated any aptitude to preach. And the second person is related to that last thing. So Steve Young was a Bible class teacher. And I remember being in that class, I think I would have been 10 years old at the time. And we had a couple of guys that were 10, a couple of guys that were 12 or 13. And Steve says, you know what, guys, we're going to preach a sermon. Now, all of us were Christians. We had been baptized in Christ. And we're like, no way, we're too young. We can't preach a sermon. He said, no, 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 we're going to preach a sermon. We're going to spend a whole quarter working on this. I'm going to be here by your side working out what you're going to say. And I'll deal with the preacher and get the opportunity. And so we did that. I know the first sermon we did was Sins of the Lip. And we took different things, gossiping, <laughs> lying, and divided up 10 minutes apiece. And yeah. we did that. And, and it's just, it was such an encouraging thing. It was almost unheard of. And, you know, I remember uh, writing out every word of my sermon. As you At that point, that's the way you're going to do it. But I had just enough exposure to public speaking to know you're supposed to get up and look at the audience from time to time. So I start reading. And I look at the audience. And then I lose my place. And it'd be this awkward, like a minute while I'm frantically searching for where I left off. And, and it, was, it was terrible. I still have it. Uh, I tell all the other guys, if they ever get the big head, I'm going to flip out this. It's, it's audio cassette. That's how old it is. I'm going to flip out <laughs> the audio cassette and, and use it to, as extortion. But no, that was incredible in terms of just getting me on my feet. And, and Steve, we did another sermon on uh, assembly and being on time and and then David kind of took over from there and just started pressing us into service. There was a congregation in Athens, Tennessee. I grew up in Knoxville that didn't have a preacher. And so we had a rotation and I got involved in that. So that would certainly be David Riggs and, and Steve Young. Now, in the academic side, I've had several teachers that were really instrumental for me. Um, I would say Miss Coker was the first one. That's in second grade. Right. So I had another teacher. And let's just say. I was not the most well-behaved child, and she was frustrated with me. She didn't know what to do with me. I think, quite frankly, she thought I was a hoodlum. So my parents get called in, and we have all these parent-teacher conferences. And Miss York, I think, had just about written me off. And so it came to Miss Coker's attention, and she said, hey, let me have that kid. I, I know what's wrong. I can deal with this. Mm-hmm. And so what was happening was that Miss York, to her credit, and she was a teacher, but she wasn't attentive to my needs I wasn't being challenged enough. Mm-hmm. And so Miss Coker saw that. And so there was me and another kid, Matt, that she kind of gave us extra work and extra things to do and kept us occupied. And guess what? The behavior problems disappeared. And yeah. so I, I just thank her because so many people like Miss York were willing to throw me away saying this kid's not about anything. And he's just talking all the time. He's disruptive and not realizing that I needed to be challenged more. And Miss Coker saw that. So definitely she's one of those teachers. I think about uh, Miss Niece in seventh grade. She encouraged me. I love to write. And so she encouraged me to enter a lot of contests and, and did well in those contests. And really appreciate her seeing that aptitude in me and encouraged me to do that. Miss Williams, my Latin teacher for three years in high school. I took Latin. Yes, it's a dead language. But, <laughs> uh, in defense of myself and, and that choice, most of the romance language are based on Latin. And so even yeah. today, I use that to break down new words. If I can look at the Latin roots, I can guess educate yeah. guess as to what the word means. And, and a lot of Latin is used in law and medicine as well. So that's helpful. But she was so good because in studying the language, she went beyond just the aptitude of how to say this and how to write this. We studied Roman culture. We studied Roman government. We studied what it was like. And I just remember it made such a big impression on me. Yeah. And then I would say, lastly, in the educational space, uh, my senior AP English teacher, Miss Beverly, uh, she really challenged me uh, to do better. And, and I was kind of 
just throwing things together and expecting to get some good grades. And uh, she would challenge that one time. I know I, I did a, um, I think it was a book review on Alan Patton's Cry, the Beloved Country about South Africa. And she wrote up at the top, you said nothing, but you said it well. <laughs> she gave me an A. Now, I didn't care what she said, her commentary. I'm like, you gave me an A. I just don't care. But I tell people, I'm the guy who says nothing well. <laughs> and then the last teacher I would throw out there, this is really a college professor. I, I'll never forget him. Um, it was, of course, I was taking major black writers. And this professor had a reputation, again, for being very demanding. And I remember the first paper that we put together, Ron Baxter Miller, that was his name. Professor Miller had a paper and I did what I normally do, literally wait till the last minute, night before, crank something out, expecting to get an A. And a lot of hubris there, I understand. But anyway, I did that, and I got a C. Mm. Benjamin, I'd never got a C in a paper in my life. Mm. And, and, and here I was trying to maintain a 4.0, and so I had to schedule an appointment with Dr. Miller and say, hey, wait a minute now, there's something wrong here. <laughs> and uh, you're threatening my GPA. You're threatening. And that was before I got to the enlightened state with Dr. Fisher. Um, so anyway, he said, well, Clark, I tell you, your chances of getting an A out of this class, probably 4%. He oh, said 40, he said 4%. I was crestfallen, but at the same time I was motivated going back to what you were saying to prove him wrong, to show him what I had. So I reached down deep and got a little better than the next paper. And by the time the class was over, I got the A. And so I go back to professor Miller and ask, what was that all about? He said, man, I could tell what you were doing. You were relying upon old talent. I mean, what you've done in the past, wait until the last minute. You weren't pushing yourself. Yeah. He said, I don't care if it's better than what your peers were doing. The fact is, you weren't investing enough. And so that's why I said I learned to compete against myself. It doesn't matter where your work product is relative to your peers. If you're not doing the best you can do, that's a failure. And so that was so critical for me. So I would say in the education space, those are the folks that, that meant the most to me. And then uh, in the athletic space, um, I had a couple of coaches, Coach Gentry, I'll never forget him. I played Little League uh, football from the time I was nine. I think I played uh, first year in high school, and then I quit. But one thing I'll never forget, we had a, a – I don't know if they still do this now or not, but we had a prayer before every game. And we had one of the kids – he'd always ask one of the kids to lead prayer, and he led a prayer, and he asked uh, God to grant us victory. And immediately, Coach Gentry stepped in and said, son, God doesn't take sides in the football game. And I've never forgotten that. I thought that was a really good lesson that, hey, you want to pray that we're healthy and we play well and nobody gets hurt and that sort of thing. But to, to ask God to come down and favor one team versus the other, well, you got a bunch of boys over there who are praying the same thing or could be. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You just want to pray that everybody does things well and stays healthy and doesn't get hurt. So yeah. I thought that was pretty memorable. And then I had a ninth grade, my freshman year, Coach Rector, he was a really fun coach to play for. We didn't win a lot of ball games, but boy, did we talk a lot about life lessons, which is one of the reasons why I think sports is such a great activity for young people. You learn a lot of things about life, especially if it's a team sport, about dealing with other people and doing your job, um, lifting up other folks, being proud of the successes of others, not being jealous and so many good things you can learn from team sports and individual sports for that matter. Yeah, no, there's so many great things that you said that the professor who, who mentioned that he had about a 4% chance of getting an A, <laughs> one thought that came to my mind was one of the greatest dangers, to, and I can't remember who quoted this or said this, but one of the greatest dangers to success is success. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, we see it all the time with, 
why is it so hard for an NBA team to three-peat or yes. to even get past that three-peat? Yes. Because yes. you've already tasted it. You've right. already, you know, lifted up the trophy. Yep. Now you have to run it back. Now you have to do it again. And so there's something there that I thought was really interesting how sometimes we even need, we need these pushes. We need to get yes. just a little bit, like we were talking about with your daughter, like, all right, you got to own this. And yes. that's, I think that's part of that secret of why some people continue to, to elevate in so many different areas of life and where other people are like, well, what's going on where it's not really even a secret. It's just every day. It's the idea of showing up and like, once you say, okay, yep, I got it all figured out. Right. That's where that, that's where it really gets dangerous. Absolutely. Let me piggyback on that. I remember this interview and it really left impression on me. It was the, at the time the the Colts, uh, Peyton Manning was there and the Colts went through a great run and they were the preeminent team during the regular season. Now they had some problems in the playoffs uh, especially with the Patriots. But you just look at the winning percentage during the regular season, they were phenomenal. Yeah. So they're talking to the general manager and they were asking him, why were the Colts so successful in the regular season? He said, here's why. He said, when we look for players, there are a couple different kinds of players. There are players that for their whole life, they look to this, that this is the pinnacle of their career, just getting to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And those folks, once they get there, they're fine. They're content. They're happy. He said, we don't want those players. We want the players who come to the NFL and they're just starting. They're not content to be there. They're going to push themselves. They want to be the best within that space. He said, those are the players that we hire for the Colts organization. So that's what I think is true here. And I don't even see it among lawyers. There's some lawyers who are just happy. I'm a lawyer. I've got this uh, nice lifestyle. I've got my bar exam behind me. And I went to this law school and they're just happy to be content. And, And I'm never content. I mean, I always want to get, I'm never completely satisfied with anything I do from this standpoint, not that I go around in depression all the time, but I'm saying yeah. I always critique what I do and I always see room for improvement. I'm always working on it. Yeah. So, um, man, there's so many other thoughts I had. One thought, how did you, where did the, uh, the love for writing and reading, you know, I talked to a lot of people. I love to read. Right. There's a lot of people that don't read. There's a lot of people like, like, you know, once they graduate from high school, they stop reading. Like, what are you talking about? And something I've done, Kevin, we got a new bookshelf here recently. And I wanted, so one of the things I've been trying to do is slow down a little bit mm-hmm. and really reflect upon certain books that have changed my life. So like when I was in pharmaceutical sales, one of my doctors gave me the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by mm-hmm. Robert Kiyosaki. Okay. And the, the, the premise behind that book was um, two boys and one of the boys' dad, I think he was a principal, so he made a good living. But the other boy's dad was considered the rich dad. Mm-hmm. And he had, you know, this board of people that would guide him and give him suggestions. And one of the things, I don't remember what most of the book was about, but I remember that the rich dad surrounded himself with people who were smarter than him. Right. And so when I when I was thinking about getting into preaching, that had an impact on me. Yes. And I went to Dallin Road because the two preachers there yes. combined had about 50 or 60 years experience of preaching. So I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but <laughs> they do. They're smarter than me. So I want right. to be around them yes. to, to learn. So I've been looking at different books, like little things like that, that, I mean, we moved across country and that wasn't the only thing, but it did stick with me. So it's interesting that a lot of people don't read that yeah. or they don't read maybe as much as I think they should. Yes. When did that start for you? And what does that even look like for you now with family, with uh, being a partner, 
you know, how do you find that time? How do you get all that in now? Well, it's a great question. And really it starts first and foremost with my mother. My mother was adamant about reading and she impressed upon me and my brother, Dion, younger brother, the importance of reading. And so we started off early, you know, reading to us in the womb, uh, reading to us as kids, going to the library every summer. We would go to the library and participate in those summer reading programs. We had books all over the house. Uh, We had subscriptions to the newspapers, subscription to Ebony Magazine, subscription to National Geographic, subscription to Life Magazine. We were a very literate family. I saw both mom and dad reading all the time. So it was just expected. And then you add to it, the extended family had a couple of uh, aunts, Aunt uh, Willoughby and Aunt Blanche. Uh, they always, they never, I always wanted them to buy just regular toys. It was never that. It was always something educational. Most likely not, it's going to be a book. And uh, so it was just instilled. It was a, a ethic of reading is so important for us to realize our potential, to learn uh, it is a, a African-American family, education and reading were cited as the tools that we use to combat racism and provide for ourselves and our family. So I started early and I took to it then. I just, it's, it's amazing how much I love reading. I was a nerd. I mean, I took books everywhere. If we were going in the car, I had a book with me. And so every space in my life where there was some dead time, I whip out a book and I'm reading. Now, I, I was talking to my dad about this recently. It's funny you asked about it because my kids, we got talking about it. And they were asking about Dion, my younger brother. And so I said, I can't remember. I know he did reading just like I did. So I asked my dad, he said, well, both of you had to read a lot just because your mom focused on that. But but you were a little excessive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That sounds so good. And I, I remember going to uh, the the library during the summertime for those yep. challenges as well. Yep. And I think after I graduated, I just went on this tear. I think maybe that summer I read about 17 books. And Wow. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't remember most of them now. <laughs> Uh, but it was just interesting. I don't know where I was getting them. Maybe I was buying them at some um, old bookstores and things like that. But that's still, that's one of the things I love to do. There's this place here where we live where there's all these old books, like for 25 yep. cents. So yep. I don't remember when I did it, but somehow either I sold it or just donated the Rich Dad Poor Dad books. I said, you know uh, what? I want to go, I want to buy that book again because it yep. just had a big impact. So I found it at this store, yep. like 25 cents. So I just want it. <laughs> I wanted it back just so I could have it in my library. But there's been a couple other books. Like uh, when I first started with Pfizer, there was a book called Knock Em Dead by mm-hmm. Martin Yates. It's mm-hmm. a great book on interviewing. Like everything is in there. The first interview that I had, the face-to-face interview, every question except for maybe like one was in that book. I was like, wow, Man, wow. This is unbelievable. And even though when I was, uh, I was interviewing for, a specialty position with Pfizer. Uh-huh. I was trying to figure out, okay, what could I do, you know, to make an even greater impression? So right. I asked someone in the regional office, what is this reg- regional manager reading? Is he reading uh-huh. any books? Uh-huh. So he was reading the book, Never Eat Alone. Huh. So I bought it. This was like in 05 or 06. So I bought it <laughs> and I read it. And, you know, so I, I dropped that in the interview. Uh-huh. You know, just, you know, to, to make that connection. So it's just been interesting how books, you know, can do so many things. Absolutely. And even like I was mentioning to you with this, uh, this coaching I've been getting through ultra speaking, I only right. learned of these guys by reading this book called ultra learning. 
when, right. I, when I read the book, I'm like, man, I want to see, maybe this could help me out with my preaching. Yes. And so I've been able to make this connection, but it all just started with just buying a book. Absolutely. Well, let me, I've got so many thoughts on reading. You'll probably have to tell me to shut up at some point, <laughs> but um, it, it really is a wonderful way to develop yourself and develop your mind. Uh, obviously you can do that through having great conversations with people that think different things on different issues. But I find reading in a very unique way helps me understand other points of view. I've gone through different stages in my reading. When I was younger, most of my reading was fictional reading. And I did that really all the way up until probably law school. And then I started to pivot and almost got to the point where I looked at fiction with disdain. I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. You're not advancing the ball. You're not learning anything. This is just all made up. It's narrative. It's creative. But no, you're not learning. So all my reading at that point became I want to learn about something. For example, in 2008, we had the Great Recession. What in the world's going on? I got to read about this. I probably bought about 50 books on uh, collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities and things of that nature. Or I went through a period of time where I was very interested in Russia and China. I went out and bought all the books I could about that. And it really has helped me in terms of just understanding. The other thing, and this is something that came up, Benjamin, in our profession. So you were asking about getting involved in writing. I contend that good writers are first good readers. And so if you, and, and there's a friend of mine, she was asking me, how do you write the way you are? I read so much. And when you read like that, especially if it's good reading, you pick up on turns of phrases. You pick up on how to uh, frame a paragraph thematically. You pick on how to advance a thought, how to make arguments. And you've just got to do that enough times to where that kind of the Malcolm Gladwell thing, you do anything enough times, you develop a certain proficiency. Yeah. So I tell you, if you want to be good at writing, you got to be a good reader. It's helped me with my vocabulary. It's helped me with uh, being a critical reader. It's helped me with my analysis, both in, in the church space and also within um, within the law space, if you will, as a preacher and as a lawyer. So I think there's so many things that come from reading that. And let me say this, too. I even read things that I anticipate that I'll disagree with. For example, uh, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe that God exists. I believe in heaven and hell. All the things taught in the Bible, I believe those to the core of my being. But I've got books on my uh, shelf by atheists and agnostics. You say, why would you do that? Because I want to understand their worldview so I can help convince them that they're wrong. And, and I don't want to do, you know, sometimes preachers will do this. They'll, you know, put up an argument, the straw man knocking down and think, aha, I've demonstrated for you all how you deal with this. And then we go out there in the real world and those tigers have fangs. And it's like, well, that's not what he said because he didn't do a good enough job. I want to hear the best argument that my adversary has so that I can deconstruct it and show this is what's wrong with this and then pivot to Christ and have him be uh, the major focus of their life. So, you know, reading has just opened up my uh, world in so many different ways. And, and you're right, Benjamin, there are some people in the world, in the world who don't read and don't read enough. And I have to be careful because I don't understand that. I really don't. I enjoy it so much. I mean, a good afternoon for me is having a good book and just sitting on the couch reading for hours, you know? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I, I love that. And yeah, and I, I certainly don't want to come across either, you know, looking down on people. It can, um, it's interesting how you just kind of, you pick up things. And yeah. podcasts have been really good for me as well, where right. I picked up different book recommendations where I will buy them and uh, I'll put them in my Amazon cart just so yep. I won't lose them. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to overspend on books and I'll yes. let them sit sometimes. I'll let them sit yes. six months yes. and touch them. But Absolutely. if somebody tells me to buy a book, 
Uh-huh. Typically, I'm going to buy it. But the other thing I think about as well, and uh, I just had one thought for you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I would love to see a Kevin Clark book website where it's just like this list of mm-hmm. book recommendations. The fact that mm-hmm. you bought all these books, I'd, right. I'd be amazed to see. Like, <laughs> I want to see. I do. I want to see like what your library. And I thought about. I thought about things like that too, where. Like Andrew Luck, for example, with the yes. he was still playing. I, I think he still has it. He started a book club, and yep. my wife is doing a book club with a couple of sisters at church. Yep. And I'm just there's there's something there because the book books can take you anywhere to the Absolutely. future, to the past, right? And you just learn so much. I got this book on uh, Churchill, who was just mm-hmm. an amazing person, and just the things that he did. Right. And the other thing I think about too, Kevin, is the fact that. You know, God has given us this revelation in book right. form. Exactly. In book form. Exactly. And so there's there's always been something there to the written form, to, to the book. You know yep. what I mean? And yep. so even like I, I do, I get nervous sometimes when young people and it's something it is interesting too, because that's something I'm trying to instill in my son. Right. It's not like a it's not a punishment to read. Uh-huh. Like, oh, this is boring, but really making that connection uh, of, of turning it into a joy. So, yeah, we yes. could we could talk about books. If I were to ask you if there were a couple of books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad had a big impact on me. Mm-hmm. Never Eat Alone had a big impact mm-hmm. on me. Mm-hmm. Ultra Learning Book by Scott Young. Um there have been a number of other ones. Uh, the Laws of Lifetime Growth, mm-hmm. uh, another one. Are there any books that, that you can just kind of pull out of your brain real quick that after you read it, you're like, ah, okay, I need to go do this or okay, yeah. change this habit. And I know the Bible is always going to be number one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but what other books out there have done that for you? Well, um, when I was growing up, I think, and this, you know, we talked about it and having lawyers in the family, but I wonder if people were trying to put me down this path. There was a book, Dream Makers, Dream Breakers by Carl T. Rowan. And what it was is basically a biography on then Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. He was the first African-American to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I remember being very impressed with all the challenges and difficulties he went through and how he was able to rise above those challenges. And it was so inspirational. And I think that's the reason why the book was given to me. It was just an idea, regardless of whether it's in medicine or law or business or engineering, it was the idea of overcoming obstacles. Another book along the same lines, uh, Bing Carson's Gifted Hands, a fantastic book about how he came from absolute poverty to become one of the foremost surgeons in the world and and really just made an impression about how we can be successful in life. So those early on were books that, that really inspired me. And I think my parents and friends we're careful to try to find things that would do just that because the idea was you can be and do anything you want to look at these folks. They did it. Uh, now fast forwarding a little bit more, one of my favorite books, and it's not one that I can say I've necessarily read cover to cover more of a reference book that I use a lot. It's called making the case, uh, the art of persuading judges. And it is by, uh, the late, uh, us Supreme court justice, Antonin Scalia and professor Brian Garner. Now Garner's famous because he, is the editor of Black's Law Dictionary, which is kind of like the Bible for lawyers. But I find myself, even now as a lawyer who's practiced for almost 21 years, just about every time I have an argument, pulling that book off the shelf and kind of rifling through some of the basic wisdom of here's how to present arguments, here are some of the pitfalls, here are some of the traps 
to avoid. So that book, and, and I tell people, whether you're in law or not, it might be a good investment because most of us are in, at some level, the persuasion business. Certainly as a preacher, you're in the persuasion business, uh, but just as ambassadors for Christ, every one of us at one point is trying to persuade people to see the world through the lens of Christ. And so the more that we learn about persuasion, uh, the better we'll be. Obviously, the power is in the word, but you can either hinder the word or you can help the word, adorn the doctrine, as they say. So those are some books that kind of stand out to me. Uh, now I'm reading uh, a lot of fiction. I've read some comic books. You and I have talked a little bit about yeah. this. Um, <laughs> one, one of the ones that stands out is Christopher Priest, who was interesting. He was the first uh, African-American editor at Marvel. Mm. He was also a Baptist preacher. And uh, he did a run on Black Panther that is incredible. The first three volumes in particular. One of the things I like about the first three volumes is, and I hate to say this, but there's no profanity at all. And that's, that's kind of hard nowadays because that seems to be part of the genre. But such great stories, and they yeah. draw upon politics and culture and yeah. society. And, and, you know, I tell people comics are not just for kids. I mean, this yeah. stuff is written at a very adult level. Yeah. And uh, I've even had some sermons that may use some illustrations from uh, a comic that I've read that was particularly profound. So uh, yeah. I love those. Um, I'm right now reading uh, Heroes in Crisis about where do, in the D.C. world, where do heroes go when they're burnt out and they're having emotional problems, trauma problems? There's a place where they go and there's a murder that happens there. They're trying to figure it out. Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman all working together. Um, also reading Batman and the Outsiders. He's assembled a group of people. They're not what we call A-list heroes. It's the Signal, uh, Zatanna, Orphan, they all work together and try to handle some things that Bruce Wayne thinks he can't handle as Batman. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I know you love comics too, my friend. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm, all, I'm all Marvel, man. I'm all about the, <laughs> the Avengers and Iron Man. You know, I started, yeah, yeah. I started with the comics. I didn't start with the comics until recently. There's a, yeah, there's a store yeah. and a comic book store. So I started really getting, uh, getting into um, the, the Funko Pops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, I got a number of, uh, you know, uh, gauntlets and yes, uh, shields yes. and, and, uh, all that kind okay. of stuff. But I did try the, the comics for a while, but I had a hard time with them. Cause I was like, all right, like they kind of like a, a, once in a while, well, not once in a while, more often or not, they recycle back. They do all over again. It's like, they do. They do. You know, they do. They're, they're expensive too. Yeah, they're very expensive. They're expensive. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something here, real quickly. We're, we're yeah. about out of time. Going back to your reading, do you have any? I'm curious. Do you have any method when it comes to taking notes? Or yeah. what I mean by that, are you using Kindle, hard copy? Are you writing in the front of the cover or the front of the book? That's what I often do. Mm -hmm. uh, or is, you know, are you putting things on note cards? What are you doing to capture some of that info? Um, and I'm kind of old-fashioned, so I love the tactile sensation of actually having hard copy books. Yeah, so I haven't really converted to electronic reading yet. And I know when it first came out, everybody said that signaled the death of traditional hard copy books. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think there are technologies that can be used side by side and they complement one another. I know some people that will say, look, if I'm traveling, I want my e-readers because I want to lug all those books around. But if I'm at home, then I love having the, the book right in my hand and curling up with it. So for me, what I typically do, and this is my focus, um, if I hear or read something that's different that I don't know, if it's a word I don't know, if it's a concept, if it's a cultural, political, historical reference, 
then I pull out my phone and I have like a note section or sometimes I'll put it in an email and I write those things down. And sometimes, depending upon how I'm feeling, if I feel the need right then and there, I'll do a quick Google to see what it is. A lot of times I'll just save it for later and then come back at it and say, hey, I want to follow up on that because there was a cultural reference to something that I didn't get. Uh, I also look for things, and this is, I'm a wordsmith. I love words. So if I see a great turn of phrase, I will write that down. So, you know, one day I'm going to use that phrase. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't make a whole lot of notes other than that. It's really just words because I love words. I love concepts. I love phrases. But I do, anytime there's a reference to something I don't know that happened historically or something that happened even more recently, I feel the need to go out and, and, and figure that out because it adds richness to what the author is trying to convey. But I don't do a lot of, I mean, I'm one of those guys that I hate marking in books. I know it's my book. I know I bought it. I know I have every, but I think going back to being a kid, you were taught not to do that. And that's just stayed with me. So I just can't, even in my Bible, I just can't highlight stuff. So I just mentally highlight it. And then what I do, Benjamin, most often is when I'm reading a book, it's more than just the time that I spend with the text. If I'm riding in the car, if I'm taking a shower, if I'm in the checkout line, I'm thinking through those concepts. And I'm thinking, okay, how does that, do I agree with that? Do I not agree with that? How does that relate to something else? And so I really make it mine. So by the time I finish that book, I've invested a lot of time, not just the reading, but thinking, analyzing, meditating on it. And if it's a particularly good book, then, and I like your idea of recommendations, uh, I will recommend it to some friends of mine whom I know are readers and say, hey, check this book out. And it's good for this proposition. And of course, I always have to issue my disclaimers. Look, I may not agree with everything that's in the book, but it is thought provoking. And in this particular space, that person has a lot of good information to convey. and It's worth your time. So if Kevin Clark was to write a book, Mm -hmm. what might that book look like? You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I have if you look at my bookshelves, really, you could put them in three categories. Uh, religion, law, and politics. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to write a book that draws upon all three of those things, religion, mm-hmm. law, and politics. And I, to be honest with you, I've really wanted to do a fiction book mm-hmm. to really inspire some kids drawing upon those three uh, backgrounds. Because I see books that are written from one or the other, but rarely have I seen people write a book from all three perspectives. And, and obviously when I say all three perspectives, my Christian perspective is not cabined in this small space. I mean, it overlays everything. But from the standpoint of a secular uh, division, I want to draw upon those strands, all three of those. And so I'd like to do, and this is the other thing I'd like to do, is uh, in the entertainment space, I find that there are too many uh, books, young adult books in particular, I'm going through this with my kids, that, that I feel like have inappropriate material. And, and, and there are so many good stories to tell, but they're told in a way that's very profane, that gets in the gutter. And so I think there's a real need to, to develop some literature um, for young adults that draws upon those things, but also is uplifting and also is consistent with the moral standards of the Bible. And you can do that. And yeah. so you know, I don't know if I'll live long enough to do it. I don't know if I have enough time to do it, but I would like to write a book, maybe some fiction books that draw upon all of those and, and also, I'd like to talk a little bit about race. You know, it's something you and I have talked a lot about, and yeah. race and Christianity in particular, because it's something that we continue to struggle with. And I think we have all the tools that we need to overcome that. And yet, for whatever reason, we have not fully invoked the power of those tools and skillfully used them to make more progress. And so that's a space where I think I would lie. I did a lot of writing or have done a lot of writing here recently uh, in the wake of the George Floyd death, the tragic death. 
And I think it'd be great for me to sit down and all the things that I want to say and draw up on all these email conversations and all the telephone calls and text and kind of put it in one space. Uh, really would like to do that at some point in time. Is there a way for us to see any of that writing that you've made with George Floyd or is that just still kind of like in bits and pieces? Yeah, let me let me think about it, because I think some of it does. Some of it's very personal to the person who's asked me questions, yeah. but some of it, I think, could be a little more uh, for the broader public, if you will. Just some points. Yeah. There are points that I make everywhere. I mean, for example, one of the three things I've told people and advocate people during the wake of the George Floyd incident when it comes to race relations and diversity inclusion is really a, a three-pronged attack. It's education, uh, self-examination, and dedication. And the idea is, first of all, we have to educate ourselves to questions about uh, does racism still exist? What is being done that is hindering groups of minorities, if anything? And I know a lot of people will start that with a conclusion, but they do so hastily. I, I like it to what I do as a lawyer. I get a complaint in and I have my client. I don't just take the complaint and say, okay, everything is true. And therefore, let me formulate a defense strategy based on that. No, the first thing I do is I have to investigate the facts. I got to find out what's true and what's not. If my client did do that, is there an explanation for why they did? Did they do some of the things, not others? And so that's what I challenge people. Reach out to people in the education phase. Talk to people. Uh, read books. Uh, read posts, magazine articles. There's so many things that you can use and def- Definitely reach across the aisle to people who don't have the background you do and the same experience that you do, so you get a different perspective. Then once you have that education piece, then apply that to yourself, self-examination. Hey, do I do some of these things? Do I unwittingly maybe say some things or do some things that are causing some psychic harm to others? I would assume that all Christians would not want to do that. We don't do, we don't do harm to anybody. So you really have to sit down, and I tell people, look at yourself, not the way your mama does, but, but the way God looks at you. And, and we know the scriptures are, reveal everything. And, and I'll be honest with you, with me, there are things that scripture reveal about myself that I don't want to see and I don't like to see, but I need to see because that's the only way I'm going to make some changes. Yeah. And then the last piece is once you have looked at yourself, and here's where it's key, Benjamin, these things all kind of tie together. Your self-examination is only as good as the standard upon which it's based. So if you uh, have a superficial educational effort, then your self-examination is going to be superficial as well. So that's why I said you got to go very deep on number one so that number two is effective. And number three, dedication is, hey, I'm dedicated to the principle of rooting out inequality uh, based on race and ethnicity in any of my interactions in life. You know, very few of us are going to impact the arc of history the way, say, a David or a Joseph or Daniel did. But within our sphere, within our influence, we can root it out. Whenever we hear it, challenge it. And one of the things I say it's most difficult is, you know, for me, if I'm with a bunch of black people, and where somebody says something about Asian Americans, about Hispanic Americans, just step up and say, hey, that's wrong. Or even about white people, if it's not warranted. And just step up and say, that's wrong. It's so easy for me to say, ah, they're not going to change. Or, ah, you know, this is not the time. This is not the place. And I say for my white friends, same thing. You know, the hardest thing is for you to be in a room and something said about black people, and and maybe it's among your family members, for you to challenge that. So dedication says... Whenever I hear that stuff, yes, with humility, yes, with skill, yes, with effectiveness, but I've got to do something. I can't sit on the sideline. I can't nervously laugh and hope the awkward moment passes. I've got to stand up and be counted and say, no, I don't stand for that. And you ought not stand for that. And, I, you know, Benjamin, even when it comes to some of the older members in our family, I've got some folks in my family that in the past have said the old red bird, blue bird thing in terms of interracial marriage. And you can't say, well, they just grew up that way and they're not going to change. 
Well, whether they change or not, they need to hear you defending the truth. And those who are in your presence need to hear you defending the truth on that issue or any other. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. That's so true. And that's, that's really hard to do. And uh, I'll just put this out here. Uh, I started the, uh, I'm calling it the Nehemiah effect uh, Mm -hmm. after, you know, the murder of George Floyd. So uh, on my website at BenjaminLee.blog, I put all of my sermons, which includes you and two of those, where people can find sermons and conversations about racism. And I've also begun collecting different articles from people. Mm -hmm. I've talked about it as well. So uh, I know your schedule is jam-packed, but if you ever ever decide, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you, all right? Thank you, really. If you decide to write something, or if you'd like to write something, I'd love for it to be a part of that. And really, I just want it to be... Because uh, I send out a newsletter, I just wanted to be. Nehemiah was a man who took action. There was a problem. He was a man of faith. He took action. Everything you just said, he didn't sit on the sideline. Right. He sacrificed a lot, and that's what it always will require. But there was so much good that came from it. Amen. So all of us can have that kind of mindset, and that's why I call it the Nehemiah effect. I just love the story that Amen. it doesn't have to take. 90 years or 70 years for the wall to get built, it can get done in 52 days. That's right. <laughs> if we just have, you know, if we just have this next to him mentality that they had and trusting in God, but, uh, but I'd love for you, if you ever are interested, no pressure at all. Um, and uh, that would definitely, I definitely would include that on the website. So this has been, this has been really good and I appreciate it. And what I'll do, I'll go back and, I'll put the the books that you have mentioned uh, in the notes or where people can at least see them because yep. um, I want to pick up some of those books as well. Sure. And sure. Um, I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for, for everything that you're doing. Well, and you. uh, I know we talked real quick. I'll give you 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I'll put you on the spot here. Marvel or DC? Take them both. I, 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 I'm ecumenical when it comes to that. I'm sorry. I like Batman, but also like the Incredible Hulk, buddy. So I'm sorry. I, in fact, I don't understand guys like yourself to go one way or the other. You're depriving yourself of a rich trove of stories just because you're wed to Marvel. I am, dude. I know. I know. I'm biased. I may need to read some more books. <laughs> hey, I'm going to put some DC books on that list I sent you. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate your time and thanks so much. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you so much again for listening to this podcast. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope that this will certainly motivate you to go out and read some more books, uh, maybe even some comic books as well. Thank you, Kevin, for all of your thoughts. Really enjoyed my time with you. Be sure to go to my website, benjaminlee.blog, where you can find all of my podcast interviews along with the other podcasts books and blogs and other resources as well. And always remember, I can do and so can you. Take care and God bless.